roads. As Nova Scotians, they connect us to one another. As a resource economy, roads have been essential for taking goods from sellers to buyers. They take fish, produce, lumber, and livestock to market from one part of the province to another, and along with rail and ocean shipping, they bring those products to the rest of the world. It's roads that bring us to Nova Scotia's most awe-inspiring people and places. They took us to the homes and workplaces of former members of the Legislative Assembly who we spoke to for this podcast. Children spend hours on roads in rural Nova Scotia each week getting to and from school. And when emergency strikes, highways are critical for ensuring paramedics, firefighters, and police can safely and quickly make it to the people who need help. And while it's easy to take them for granted, roads are the kind of public spaces that our communities have been built around. How we go about constructing and maintaining roads is an important public policy issue for Nova Scotia. Maybe even the most important public policy issue? See, that's what we were led to believe from our conversations with former MLAs in Nova Scotia, who repeatedly named roads as the issue constituents brought them more often than any other. But we couldn't help but wonder, in a province where there is a shortage of young people, a sputtering economy, and a pretty big question mark over the future of our rural communities, the places most of those roads lead to, does our political obsession with roads pay off? In this episode of On the Record Off Script, we explore. People who were willing to identify with the party in power would be given commitment of having the road paved. One of the most important things was uh, to keep roads in, in good shape. And so your role is as a lobbyist. The party of the day that was in power created employment opportunities for those people who were loyal supporters. So This road has about $5 million worth of money connected to the road. This isn't by the other, by the other parties in head scratching. In some corners of our party, with people asking, why am I not talking about paving roads and pocketbook issues? They have a pothole, and they would call you, you want your pothole fixed. And then some people in Preston who were looking for a turkey for Christmas dinner. And so you deal with it the best way you know how to deal with it, right? You're listening to On the Record Offscript, a podcast documentary project based on conversations we have had with former Nova Scotia MLAs. Each week, we dig into one small piece of politics from the perspective of people who ran for, were elected to, and served in the Nova Scotia legislature. What makes these conversations worth listening in on is that it happened at a point in time when, for the most part, our interview subjects had no plans on returning to public office, and fewer reasons to filter out what they might say. Compared to many sitting politicians, they may sound a little more direct, a little less polite, and reveal an unseen perspective on politics. And this week we talk about roads. We never planned on asking MLAs about roads. But in interview after interview, the topic kept coming up. Here's how it happened. A few of the people we interviewed named Rhodes as being the most common issue brought to them by constituents. Ramona Jennings, a former NDP MLA from the Annapolis Valley, was one of those MLAs. Everywhere you go when you're the MLA, even though there's no job description, constituents expect that if they're their MLA to be available. Maybe it's different rural to urban, I'm not 100% sure, but um, they they would immediately tell you something they wanted you to know. And generally, over 50% of the time, it was roads. Roads. There were a handful of other MLAs who said similar things, who put roads on the top of the list of issues that constituents brought them. But most ex-MLAs didn't explicitly tell us that roads were the most common issue that was brought to them. But the issue of roads was nearly every MLA's go-to example when we asked them a broader question about being the MLA and representing their communities. 
Here's what I mean. This is Pam Birdsall, a former MLA for the Mahone Bay area. Well, we'd be we'd talk around the, the caucus table about, you know, roads. Roads was the, the perfect thing because our, our strength in, in opposition was urban. And when we all came on, I mean, it was the, it was the rural vote that made us government. And in rural communities, roads are paramount. And people would say, well, don't go down the liberal road. And I said, what's the liberal road? And they said, well, that's the road that the liberal paved before the election 10 years ago. And they just put tar down on gravel and it's a terrible road. And then the Tories came in and didn't touch the road because the liberals had done it. And I said, are you kidding me? Roads were important. And we heard this from many rural MLAs. We'll come back to Pam's story in a moment. What would you say is the ideal role of an MLA? The, the ideal role of an MLA, I, I believe, is to uh, lobby for uh, your constituents, and that can be uh, lobbying, uh, whether you're in opposition or government, for uh, in a rural constituency, as mine was, uh, one of the most important things was uh, to keep roads in, in good shape. Is there a tension between sort of those sort of constituency issues that um, were very specific to different neighborhoods and the kind of bigger picture issues mm-hmm. that it sounds like you were interested in, in working on? Uh, no, because I mean, you, you know, when you're an MLA, you have to multitask. And if you, if you especially if you're a minister and you're an MLA, and you, I'm, you have a million things to do, but no one thing I can say is more important in, in, in the views of your constituents that that road is the most important thing in their lives. They, they don't care about what you're voting on, this big picture of whatever, red tape about small business. That road is what they want done. So what happens when an MLA brings a road issue, often about a very specific road, with a specific solution in mind, to Province House? Back to Pam Birdsall's story. Pam's story falls in the category of best case scenario. I had um, an issue, there was a road, Stanhope Road, it's a road up in New Germany, and um, there's a lot of Christmas tree growing activity. And in this area, on the highway, you see Balsam for Capital of the World sign. So Pam develops a relationship with some of the Christmas tree growers in her riding, and she took a strong interest in the industry, going to conferences, learning about how their business functions. They'd say, Pam, what about this? What about this? So one day I got a call from someone who said, we have a big, we went to Toronto, we have a big um, contract that we will change our business entirely, but the road getting to our woodlot is so bad. We can't even get, we, it turns to mud, and then in these big trucks, they're up to their axles in mud. And it, the, the condition of the road really was going to make or break their livelihood. You've got to drive in the truck with me and see this, Pam. Okay. So I went up and drove and looked at everything, and, you know, the... Look at what the transportation, they put gravel at the top of the road, all washed down in the rain, and now it's in the gutter. That doesn't do me any good. So Pam gets out of the truck and sits down with the tree growers and asks them to work with her on a plan that she can take back to caucus and the ministers responsible for the road. And so we whipped it together in two days. I went to caucus with aerial views of the area. Um, 
everything marked out approximate values of like $2 million in this area a year, this amount, this amount. So I'm able to say, look, we've got in this, this road has about $5 million worth of money connected to the road. If we can't fix this, there's a big problem. These are my constituents. What are we going to do? So then I had the deputy that was, I talked to the Minister of Transportation, then to his deputy, and then we worked it with our, our person here, our superintendent, and we worked it all down. And then I said, okay, what I need from you being the, the Christmas tree guys, two kilometers in from the road, a hundred feet beyond that, what's required, what's required. I said, I need a, a recipe. You need mostly ditching, and if you need mostly ditching, there's all that gravel in the ditches that can go back on the road, right? They went, right. So we transformed the road in a way that had never been done before, in a way that made sense. Mm. And I listened to my people, because that's what you're supposed to do. Mm. And so that, that was a perfect example of being so involved in the community that they could pick up the phone and say, Pam, you got to come. Mm. And they all had my cell number, said, sure, whatever. So um, I loved that. I loved that. It was really like mm. rubbing my hands together and saying, yes, let's find a solution to this. That's Pam Birdsall's story. It's an example of the best case scenario of what happens when an MLA brings their constituents' road concerns to Province House. She quite literally saved Christmas, maybe even Christmases, for the tree farmers on the Stanhope Road. Pam's efforts and the help she managed to provide to her constituents illustrates the importance of road maintenance on public issues, and in this case, that issue is economic development and business success. But it's not just about having the convenience of a smooth ride to and from work. Having decent roads, Ramona Genics argues, are the rural equivalent of having a reliable public transportation system in urban areas. Because we don't have public transportation outside of Metro. You have, we have, and we're really lucky in Kings County, we do have Kings Transit, which does the main route and does Wolfville, and you can get from point A to point B. But people live up the mountain, and we've got, there's a lot of roads in Kings County, and if they're not well maintained, people's cars uh, get beat up quite badly. And so it's their investment, and it's the way they get to work. So that was the biggest concern. The food for thought in that regard, I've often said that, uh, you know, rural MLAs have a, a, a larger workload uh, than urban MLAs because of the road issue. And um, in some respects, it makes sense to have rural ridings perhaps uh, smaller in, in population so they can deal with all that extra work. Uh, in a rural riding, like uh, Pictou West or uh, Kings West or you know any uh, rural riding out there, um, that's a, an extra responsibility that uh, MLAs have in those ridings. It takes a lot of their time and, and effort. Should urban ridings be smaller and rural ridings bigger so that MLAs can look after the roads? Well, this was the only time that we heard that particular recommendation. It wasn't uncommon to hear MLAs equate their own workload with the level of constituency-specific work that was waiting for them on their desks back in their constituency. I asked Rodney McDonald about that. He's the former leader of the Progressive Conservative Party and former Premier of Nova Scotia. And he was the MLA for the riding of Inverness, which is one of the largest ridings by geographic area in the province, so he knows a lot about roads because he has a lot of them. I asked him a question that often gets asked when we talk about MLAs doing the kind of work we've described them doing on roads, lobbying for their specific roads instead of, say, a better road maintenance policy for the province as a whole. You know, a lot of times political scientists will say, you know, 
MLA's, MPs spend too much time doing sort of the constituency work, their real job as lawmakers. Um, and it, it sounds like boy, that's kind of one of the biggest burdens. Is there a... Um, well, I, I would say that they read that in a book somewhere. Right. <laughs> they really don't understanding understand. It's like saying, well, you know, if you're a carpenter, your real job is simply to build the house. But, you know, all the other parts, actually how you build the house don't matter. Well, to me, you know, in order to truly understand it, uh, you have to, to live it. And uh, um, I, uh, in principle, absolutely. And that's what a job of an MLA is. It's a lawmaker, uh, but in practicality, that that's not that's not the case. It's uh, it's part of the responsibility, but uh, yeah, to say otherwise is not really to understand the job. Okay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever I listen back to the recordings from our interviews and hear laughter like that that I don't understand, I try to think back and remember why. Usually it's because we were doing the interviews in somebody's home and one of their pets did something silly or cute. In this case, I'm just really not sure. There were no pets in the interview. <laughs> I can't be, I, I, well, I, well I, I, I have because I, uh, uh, you know, that's, it's just the reality of it. And uh, now, if you happen to represent a riding where, you know, there's very little healthcare issues or very little road issues or, you know, economic development's not a problem. Well, your type of uh, perspective on that may be different. Regardless of where an MLA lived, rural or urban Nova Scotia, their ability to get the roads in their constituency paved seemed to depend less on what part of the province they came from and had more to do with what side of the House of Assembly they sat on. The constituencies used to uh, get almost the same amount of money for filling potholes and that kind of thing. That's Clary McKinnon, a former NDP backbencher who has served on both the opposition and government sides of the House. And if the problem was just a pothole or a minor repair, most MLAs could have influenced by requesting repair from the staff at the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure Renewal. That was fairly equitable, Clary tells us. But his efforts at getting, say, a full road paved as an opposition MLA were often fruitless. So there's a fundamental difference from being in, uh, in uh, government and uh, not being in government. And uh, uh, I, I mean, it was great when I was in government. It was horrible when I was in opposition. <laughs> that looks after its constituency. It looks after the constituent. That happens federally as well. Eh? But there were some ways for MLAs who weren't a part of the government to bring road money into their constituency. During the 2013 provincial election, allegations of past secret backroom deals between the government and an opposition party to get roads paved arose during the campaign. Shortly after the election was called, Maureen McDonald, a longtime MLA for the NDP and cabinet minister, made a strong allegation about collusion between the Liberals and the PCs that held government before the NDP did. In case you weren't following politics at the time of the 2013 election, you really only need to know one thing for the story to make sense. It was well understood that the campaign was really a battle between Daryl Dexter's NDP, the governing party who were struggling in the polls, and Stephen McNeil's liberals, whose public support was steadily growing during their final years as the official opposition to Dexter's NDP. Here's what Marie McDonald said back then. In 2008, liberal leader Stephen McNeil agreed to support the conservative 
Rodney McDonald Minority Budget and Capital Plan. He said the Liberals would support the budget in exchange for a number of concessions, such as medical training seats and a vast in funding. However, we know that the Liberals and Mr. McNeil actually struck a secret backroom deal that led to the Liberals voting for the 2008 budget, a budget that put the HST back on home electricity. A secret sweetener that until today was hidden from Nova Scotians. In exchange for putting the HST back on every family's home electricity bill, Stephen McNeil received $4 million worth of road paving for six MLAs. Now, when she says $4 million in road paving for six MLAs, she means $4 million in road paving for the ridings those MLAs served. The evidence she cited was an email obtained from a Freedom of Information request, and we looked at that email. The names of the to and from sections are redacted, but what you can tell is that the message is from an employee in the Provincial Department of Transportation and Public Works. The email names the roads that should be paved, all of them in writing served by the Liberals, although the email didn't say that. And this happened during a time when the progressive conservative government was in power and looking for one of the opposition parties to support its budget so it wouldn't be defeated and go to election. It certainly is not conclusive that there was bribery or secret deal-making going on. The email doesn't mention that this is happening in exchange for a vote in favor of the budget, but it also doesn't look that good for the Liberals or the PCs. So it's difficult to prove. Road politics has a long history in Nova Scotia, and part of what has made it challenging to defeat lately is that it all hinges on motive. Allegations like this are hard to prove because it involves proving motive. Why did certain roads get paved and not others? And that kind of information isn't necessarily recorded in public policy decisions. It's hard to prove. Hard to prove, of course, unless you have an MLA who has sat on both sides of the house who can explain exactly how it worked for them. Well, uh, being an MLA in opposition is not as much fun as being an MLA in, uh, in uh, government. Clary McKinnon was one of Marie McDonald's colleagues in the NDP, and he explained that it wasn't until he sat on the government benches that he started seeing some of the roads in his riding get paved. In the uh, my uh, years in uh, opposition, I didn't get very much road work. Uh, my years in government, I had quite a few contracts that uh, were for paving, you know, substantial sections of road. That has gone on in this province for ever and ever. It's less than it used to be. Uh, but it's still, it's still there. Someone who was able to speak to how it used to be was the former NDP leader, Alexa McDonough, who only ever served on the opposition side of the House. During her time, the preferential treatment of government-held constituencies with more road work was rarely disguised as anything other than exactly what it was. There was a lot of vote-buying behavior that went on. There were several different ways that people, you know, parties engaged in, and particularly the party in power, used their power to engage in the vote buying that would perpetuate their power. So people who were willing to identify with the party in power would be given commitment of having the road paved or having their snow plowed. And it happened, you know, like it, it wasn't idle promises made those kinds of things were delivered. The deal was, vote for the winning party and you'd get better treatment from that party. Vote for someone else and you wouldn't. 
It was to the party's benefit to make it obvious that that's what was happening, so that the voters would know you were holding up your end of the bargain. Even when MLAs didn't use the term vote buying, this preferential treatment was understood by the way they described how road work happened in their communities. And in some cases, they could trace back their understanding of paving politics to their earliest engagement with party politics in Nova Scotia. So when did you first start to get involved in politics? I grew up in a family of conservatives traditionally, and it was a time when uh, the party of the day that was in power created employment opportunities for those people who were loyal supporters. So my family uh, saw politics as uh, necessary in terms of road work, construction, those kinds of things. So we were politically aware. Everyone knows that back in the day, and we're not talking that far back, if a Liberal government came in, all the Tories who worked in tr transportation were fired the next day. They knew they didn't have a job, and they would switch. And, I mean, good heavens. But Nova Scotia, you know, I have family in Dartmouth um, in the 30s who built roads, and they were all Liberals, and they ended up being very wealthy. <laughs> Many of the MLAs we spoke with seem convinced that vote buying has declined since the 80s and 90s, and that the level of influence individual MLAs have over which roads get paid, particularly the influence held by members of the governing party, isn't as strong anymore. But most MLAs that said this are ones that have been out of politics for a while. Pam Birdsall's efforts to get the Christmas tree growers a better road didn't sound like vote buying, it sounded like someone working hard for something they cared about. But if an equally caring, equally hardworking member of an opposition party couldn't wield the same level of influence over the road repair in their constituency, is this just not a more dignified version of the favoritism and parochialism that vote buying is born from? Vote buying implies that the primary motive for doing something is to get votes when the time for re-election comes around. Let's be clear, none of the MLAs told us that's why they did any of the things they did as an MLA. But that doesn't mean that the promise of votes from the people their work helped didn't influence the work they chose to focus on in their constituencies. So it's fair to say this, road politics in Nova Scotia is an issue that's history is rife with vote buying, parochialism, and pork barrel politics. Sometimes roads genuinely do need improvement, and that improvement can have a dramatic impact on people's lives and the economic opportunities for their communities. But we also got the impression that it wasn't always just about need. Not all the requests that came through an MLA's office were like the Christmas tree farmers where they could point to an opportunity that wouldn't exist without a better road. Sometimes we got the impression that the requests MLAs got for road repair were more about want than they were about need. Sure, sometimes those two things overlap, but when the two are at odds with one another, the way a voter marks their ballot has a lot more to do with want than need. The work most MLAs described doing on roads was very specific work. They focused on repairing very specific roads, almost always in their own constituency. Few, if any, MLAs talked to us about working to ensure the province's overall approach to road maintenance was sound. Instead, they talked about their own constituencies. A proactive, big-picture approach like this might see MLAs working for legislation and programs that would see some fairness in how road maintenance was prioritized. 
But the approach we heard about was reactive. This road needs gravel. That pothole needs filling. This whole road is horrible. That kind of stuff. Aren't other people better positioned to take care of those sorts of complaints? Doesn't MLA have more important things to focus on? Don't they wield some kind of power bigger than directing a road crew around their riding? I don't think, I think that role is much uh, over, overdone. I had a woman call me because she had a blocked toilet. You know, you know, I mean, I, I think in, in rural communities, and I can't speak to anything other than that, but people depend on their MLA for absolutely everything. That's not why you get elected. You get elected to represent the people in the House, as far as I'm concerned. So there's much too much time spent on things like, I want my road paved, or I want, you know, my garbage picked up on Wednesday instead of Tuesday. And you're told that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, you want to keep everybody happy so you can get reelected. It's the nature of the beast. The, the, the people just do not appreciate the role of an MLA. Like I, uh, simply because it's it's so nebulous. It goes from where's my doctor to my son's student loan didn't come through to how come they didn't chloride my road to how come the fishing season didn't open at this time. How come I can't whatever. So so there's no. You don't pick up a piece of paper and say, this is what an MLA does. He does what has to be done because, as Graham said in his book, once you're elected, a lot of your focus is spent on getting re-elected. Roads, doctor recruitment, helping constituents navigate government programs, these are all things that represent a citizen's direct interaction with the government. And it's natural for people who aren't happy with those services to go to the representatives within the system to go right to the top, or what they perceive to be the top. On the other hand, MLAs are lawmakers. They're the only people that can move and approve new legislation. Someone else can, at the end of the day, take your complaint about the bumpy road, and maybe they should. But the one thing MLAs can do that nobody else can is make laws. But the power that political parties wield in the lawmaking process, something we explored in last week's episode, can make intervening in road repair an attractive part of an MLA's job. This is Graham Steele. They do it because they like it, because... Down at the legislature, it's so hard to see sometimes what difference you're making. Like, you're just another bum in a chair down at the legislature. You vote the way you're supposed to vote, you go home. Um, it's and so, it's really hard to change things and policies and programs are a lot more complicated than you expected. There's things that might have been important to you when you get into politics and people tell you, say to you, no, we're not doing that. That's a dumb idea. Forget it. Just drop it. You know, and, and so... At the legislature, it's hard sometimes to put your finger on what, what difference you're making. What are you doing that couldn't be done by somebody else sitting in the same chair? But back at the constituency office, when you fix somebody's problem, it makes you feel good. You've helped somebody. You've done a good thing. And that, that becomes kind of addictive after a while, where that becomes the meaning that MLAs find in their jobs. In the last segment of today's podcast... We talk with two MLAs who tried to pivot the focus away from roads and onto topics they thought were more important. Danny Graham, the former Liberal Party leader and Halifax MLA, describes his experience with proposing some unconventional ideas in his party's platform in the 2003 election. I came forward with a policy that I thought set the foundation for the work that we were going to do as a party and as a government, and it was called Citizen-Centered Democracy. It was about realigning the relationship between citizens and government. I thought that the 
biggest challenge wasn't people's mistrust of government, it was government's mistrust of people. And so by creating a fundamentally different alignment between government and citizens, we were going to create a new way of being which would lead to better policies and all of these other things. In the course of making the case for that, I drew some analysis that sort of spoke to what the uh, issues, what the challenges were for Nova Scotians and, and released this. Um, I think it was in October of 2002 to head-scratching, not just criticism by the other, uh, by the other parties and head-scratching uh, in some corners of our party, with people asking, "Why haven't I? Why am I not talking about paving roads and pocketbook issues that you know sort of matter to Nova Scotians?" And um, so that policy eventually made its way into the red book that was our platform in the 2003 election. But it was, I think, the, on the back pages of where everybody thought it was because it just wasn't where Nova Scotians seemed to be, despite what I thought about it, the importance of that. There's certainly some debate among scholars, and even amongst MLAs, about how much time should be devoted to hyper-local constituency issues, and some would argue that an MLA's sole and primary job is to look after their constituents. So even if that's how you feel, and as an MLA are of the mind that you should champion the everyday issues people in your community are facing, large and small, does it logically follow that roads should be the priority? Not for Yvonne Atwell, the former MLA for the District of Preston. Because uh, I don't think that you can represent a community like the African Nova Scotian community. In, 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 in You can represent it in, in the collective way with other areas that are like, like Ports Lake and Lake Echo that are, you know, medium to upper income levels in terms of, of economics and then... Mm-hmm you know, the Prestons who have a lower uh, economic position. Yvonne was the first, and so far has been the only, female African Nova Scotian to serve as an MLA in Nova Scotia. The income gap and opportunity gap between the two communities that were a part of her constituency brought some contrast to the road repair issues that we heard dominated constituency work faced by other MLAs. I used to have a hard time with uh, people calling me from those areas when they had a pothole in front of their door. Mm-hmm. Uh, in front of their the road that they're you know and they have a boat in the backyard and they have a, a small plane in their in their their, their shed or whatever uh, up around uh, Porter's Lake and they would have a pothole and they would call you you want your pothole fixed and then some people in Preston who were looking for a turkey for Christmas dinner you know it's it's very hard to to be able to try to bring some you know equality because both people had an issue that was important to them. Right. Um, and so you deal with it the best way you know how to deal with it, right? The role of an MLA is an unclear one, with few concrete requirements or expectations. It's hard to tell if you're doing it right. You might think, a job with no requirements, that sounds like a sweet gig, right? Plenty of, plenty of time to relax, enjoy work-life balance, spend time with your friends and family... But most of the people we talked to had the opposite experience. Not having clear expectations or requirements meant that it was difficult to say no to certain things. Many MLAs described working countless hours on evenings and weekends, in addition to working a full day at their constituency office or the legislature, and sometimes both. When you have someone in a leadership position, like an MLA's job, and there's few written expectations and responsibilities for them to follow, and the public expectations are huge, you get a recipe for confusion and stress. 
And of course, even if you don't want to attend to the issues that land on your desk as an MLA, or you don't think they matter, it's hard to ignore the very obvious fact that behind each of those issues is a voter, and their potential support in the next election is attached to it. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Offscript Podcast. Tune in next week for a special episode of the podcast, and in another two weeks for a standard full episode. Offscript is produced by Springtide, a registered charity working to make democracy better here in Nova Scotia. This episode was written by me and Louise Cochran. If you liked what you heard and plan to keep on listening, then consider becoming a donor for as little as $3 a month. You can do that at offscript.ca slash donate. 